Texas got a list of suggestions after uh, 2011, a list of strong suggestions, if I will, of how to be more resilient. Promptly ignored them, and then you know, 10 years later, we ended up where we are. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, my colleague Morgan Hickman talks with Dr. Joshua Rhodes with the University of Texas at Austin to look back at the crisis that gripped Texas a year ago. In February 2021, a severe cold weather event known as Winter Storm Uri caused numerous failures at the electric generating plants scattered across Texas and other parts of South Central United States. The Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, ordered the largest rolling blackout in U.S. history to prevent grid collapse. Still, more than 4.5 million people in Texas lost power, some for as long as four days, while below freezing temperatures swept the state. Tragically, at least 210 people died as a result of the power outages from causes like hypothermia, carbon monoxide poisoning, and medical conditions exacerbated by the freezing conditions. This event was the fourth cold weather related event in the last 10 years to jeopardize the reliability of the bulk electricity supply in the region. But the unplanned outages from winter storm Yuri were more than four times as large as the previous event, a winter storm back in 2011. Morgan and Joshua look at what happened in Texas and why it happened, try to understand what we have learned since last year, and whether the measures and processes in place now would prevent a crisis at the same scale from happening again. I'll turn it over to Morgan now for her conversation with Joshua. Welcome, Joshua. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, As a refresher for our listeners, I hoped we could begin with a little bit of discussion about the underlying causes of the widespread power outages in Texas after the winter storm. Yeah, so the event that happened in February of 2021 in Texas was kind of a culmination of a bit of a perfect storm, maybe an overused narrative, but it was the first time in a long time we have seen, or actually in any recorded weather history that we saw all 254 counties of Texas under a winter storm watch at the same time. And at the same time is important because for things like electricity, which the grid partially failed for for multiple days in a row, you have to match supply and demand in real time. And so if everybody wants electricity at the exact same time, you have to be producing that electricity at that exact same time. The the grid doesn't have much storage um, in it. And so as the temperatures plummeted across the state, kind of starting in the northwest part of the state and moving um, down towards the southeast, we first saw a drop off in our natural gas production in the uh, Permian region, in the West Texas region. In fact, natural gas production dropped close to 85, 86% uh, in the days leading up to the storm. That led to curtailments of natural gas to power plants starting to happen a few days before the event. And then when the temperatures themselves reached the major metro areas, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, and in particularly when they, when they reached all the way down into South Texas, which doesn't see these temperatures at all, and demand spiked, we really just ran out of power plants. We had a lot of power plants that at that point had gone down because something froze, like a water intake line or a sensor line froze. Some were having trouble getting fuel, some were frozen, and we just essentially ended up not having enough power plants to serve um, everybody that everybody wanted. We were having to ration natural gas where it was going. We just essentially ran out of supply to meet the massive amount of demand that we had. So it seems like you're really emphasizing the importance and coordination between the natural gas systems and the electric systems. It also seemed that Texas was isolated, more isolated than some other states might be. Mm. 
and perhaps there's an inability to move power across different regions. Could you talk a little bit about how that might have contributed? Yeah, so the, about half of the power plants in the ERCOT grid, which is self-contained within the state of Texas, run off of natural gas. And so when we're looking for what power plants do we have that are dispatchable, what things can we turn on no matter what the weather is outside, whether it's the sun shining or the winds blowing, anything like that, we, we turn to our thermal fleet natural gas, coal, nuclear, things like that. Now, all of our power plants um, had issues. All types of power plants had issues during this time. But in particular, uh, we had a large amount of failings in our, in our natural gas fleet, some from freezing issues and some from being able to get fuel. And even though they only produce about 45% of our energy overall during the year, during the, the winter and in the summer peak events, for that matter, we rely more heavily on them to meet that supply and demand. So it's a very important that both the gas and the electricity grids are able to function during these events. And it's actually more important during the winter because in the summer, there's not competition for that natural gas. The natural gas is just flowing to power plants that are making electricity because in the summer, we all want air conditioners and every house in Texas has an air conditioner. Nobody wants to be heating their house during that time. And so there is no real competition for natural gas. It's not having to be rationed no matter how high, no matter how many natural gas power plants are, are consuming natural gas. But during the winter, with you know 40% of, of homes in Texas and home business in Texas consuming natural gas for heating, there was competition between the building sector and the natural gas plants as who was going to get natural gas. And we have a hierarchy of who gets it first. And it's supposed to go to homes first before it goes to, to power plants. And so that became binding at some point and we were not able to get um, natural gas to, to all of our power plants. It's different for things like coal because you can have a big pile of coal that's sitting there multiple days waiting. Although some did have freezing issues, they were not able to, we had big frozen coal piles that we couldn't break up. Same thing with nuclear, we had some, some sensor lines that froze and anytime anything looks awry at a nuclear plant, you shut it down no matter what, um, even if it's a secondary sensor line. We had wind turbines that iced over, we had solar panels that had snow on them. So everyone had issues, but the fleet that we rely on the most, the natural gas system had some of the biggest issues. Texas also is an isolated grid. The ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas is self-contained within the state of Texas. Now. The, now, there are other parts of Texas that are not on ERCOT, but there's not parts of ERCOT that are not in Texas. And so we are limited in the ability of ourselves to export or import power to other systems. I will say other systems were also having trouble during that time. The Southern Power Pool to the north and MISO to the east were also having outages during that time. Not as bad as ours and not for the duration of ours, but we had limited connectivity to them and also Mexico um, during that time as well. Very good. It sounds like you're really emphasizing the different sort of resilience attributes of electricity resources, in particular, maybe natural gas versus coal or oil and also renewables. I wondered if you could speak a little bit more to those resilience attributes, particularly in light of energy transitions and movements away from coal and gas and some of these maybe resources that are viewed as more reliable or important for resilient situations. What does this look like in the future? Yeah, and that's a good point. And, and something else I, I should say, a lot of times renewables have knocks against them because they their power source, be it the sun or the wind, is called just-in-time delivery, meaning that the wind is blowing, they're making electricity. The sun is shining, they're making electricity. 
Actually, the natural gas system in Texas is also just-in-time delivery. We are producing gas mostly out in West Texas, some in, um, some in South Texas. We're, we're refining it, and then we're moving that to power plants to basically be consumed. We have some storage in the system, um, but, it is, but it is not much. So if, if we're talking about you know, just-in-time fuel delivery, I'm now more inclined to put gas over with renewables in terms of their fuel resiliency um, metrics. Things like nuclear or, or coal that have large amounts of you know, fuel stored on site are not going to be as impacted by supply chain issues or resiliency issues in the delivery of that fuel. They can typically ride through multiple days, if not months or sometimes years, of before, before they need fuel delivered to them. So as we move forward in terms of you know, decarbonization, we're going to have to match supply and demand in the future, just like we do it today. So we're, we are going to have to pay attention to you know, what things can we you know, turn on, turn off when we need it, but also on the demand side, what types of things can we, can we move over there? Because the more controllable the demand side is, the less controllable the supply side needs to be. That's an excellent point. After the storm in Texas, you tweeted that we could have prevented at least some of the devastation in Texas by building a more resilient electric and gas grid but you note it will likely cost more. Do you think right. we are seeing changes in the way we prioritize or value resilience investments in Texas? Yeah, and so, I mean, those grids have to, have to work hand in hand to deliver the final product, which is electricity or heat, you know, to, to homes and businesses and, 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 keep, and keep the lights on. There's has been more of a, an ERCOT issue or a Texas issue. A lot of that is happening at the state governmental level. And I think there actually has been some move on the power plant side of things. There are minimum standards. There are weatherization standards that are becoming binding. They're checking them more often. In fact, I just heard a report the other day that of 500 and something generators in Texas or in ERCOT, only about 50 or so um, had not gotten to the standards that they have been mandated yet. And so they're having more and more frequent checks. And so that's pretty good in terms of you know, thinking about the grid as a massive machine with all of these parts. I'm less convinced on the gas side that we're prepared. We haven't even really started mapping out what the system looks like. And if you don't know what the system looks like, I don't really know how you're going to be you know, resilient. We have a lot of data and a lot of data points on where electricity infrastructure is, how much, inter- how much electricity is flowing, where fuels are going, how much it costs, this, that, and the other. We have, all, we have very little insight into the gas system. And I think until we get that insight, we're not going to know what needs to be resilient in order to make the entire um, organism, if you will, operate. That's an excellent point. You mentioned some initiatives on the electric side to enhance resilience and the need for some on the gas side. And you also mentioned cost. I wonder if you Mm -hmm. think cost is an effective incentive for encouraging some of these resilience initiatives in these different systems. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And, and a lot of times, you know, when people talk about electricity grids and things, they, they kind of talk about them in terms of if there's kind of a benevolent overlord that makes the decisions for everything. When in, at least in the U.S., in a lot of cases, and in a lot of cases around the world, too, there's liberalized markets with, you know, firms looking to, you know, make profits and, and things like that. But I think we can have resiliency built into that system. One of the examples that I, I sometimes use is, you know, minimum safety standards for cars. Like all cars in the U.S. have a minimum safety standard that they that they have to meet. That hasn't really limited the robustness of the or the number of models and things that we have. There's plenty of different types of cars of all vintages or, or all you know all sizes, makes, colors, all these things that one one can choose from, and yet they all meet this minimum level of standards. And then the market's able to you know take care of the rest. I think we can do that, and I, I think we're starting to do that on the on the power plant side. 
And so we're going to have to, you know, kind of make that decision of how much insurance do we want to buy? We can buy too little, just as much as we can buy too much. And that's a tricky line to come to, you know, unfortunately, we always kind of do this off of disasters. And so, you know, we had another similar issue in 2011, where we lost a little bit of power, a few thousand megawatts versus tens of thousands of megawatts, and just for a few hours versus a few days. And so, you know, we need to make a decision. There's different levels of money that would have to be spent to be resilient against 2011 versus 2021. And so we kind of have to have that conversation. Like, are we willing to, to pay a little more for insurance such that the pain is lessened or removed altogether? That's a great point. Um, when we think about that conversation, obviously, utility regulators, uh, utility representatives themselves and consumers are going to weigh in. Do you think there are, are active discussions among these three groups uh, about um, what the costs are, who should bear them, and what technologies should be used to enhance resilience across the systems? Sure. I mean, at the end of the day, it's going to be the consumer that bears the cost. I mean, that's just kind of how it always goes. No matter if it was a top-down approach or it's a market-driven approach, I mean, it's going to be the, the consumer is going to, to bear the cost. So I don't I don't think anyone's fooled themselves into thinking that that's not going to be the case. But I mean, you know, we are having those discussions. You know, one of the, the things that I was most worried about was that we would, we would go through this event and then it would kind of fall from the consciousness of, you know, folks in Texas or, or you know, energy folks in general. But this has been a sticky issue. I mean, this is becoming an issue in the gubernatorial campaign. It's becoming an issue in the Railroad Commission campaigns, which the Railroad Commission actually regulates oil and gas, not railroads in Texas, fun fact from history, and also in the you know Public Utility Commission and who makes up ERCOT. I mean, th th these things have, they've been, they've been sticky and they've, they've been making changes. So I'm happy to see that we're still talking about it because I think if we had the same event you know, come this winter, we would have a similar output, a similar, a similar result. So I, you know, I hope we're still talking about it in the future. Great point. Um, one thing I wonder, you mentioned that disasters are often impetus for reconsidering resilience investments and standards. And I wonder if you think that means that there are opportunities that we miss because we're so focused on the areas that have been devastated and rebuilding um, what has been broken rather than sort of proactively building a system that could be more resilient? I mean, yeah, it's hard to, to know what you don't know before it happens or, or things like that. And I, I don't know, it's, you know, that's, there's a big parallels in national security and, and, and things like that that go along with that type of thinking. The grid has been one of those things that we have some major disasters, but all, most of the time, it's just ho-hum boring. And, you know, the lights come on when you flip a switch, you know, you're not paying attention to it. It's not something, you know, America, or consumers typically pay more attention to oil through like gasoline prices, right? Because you see those prices every time you fill up your car, you know, it's, it's, it's something you're reminded of. You see them on a, on a, on a sign. You, you, don't, you don't see, you know, your local utilities reliability metrics that often, or you don't know how they compare with utility across the state um, or across the country. And so it's just, it's not something that we, we really, you know, have at the forefront of our mind that's kind of driving our, our decisions, you know, until a big thing like this happens. And so I would say it would take a lot more forethought. And there are people out there who do think about these things. But at the end of the day, you know, when they bring their ideas together, they're usually met with, well, how much does that cost? If they have an estimate, it's usually like, well, are we ever going to use that? You know, how much insurance do we want to buy? You know, kind of comes back, you know, to that. So I do see we usually end up, you know, just just fixing things kind of as as they break. 
hopefully fixing them better, although not all the time. Very good. When we think about the winter storm in Texas, it occurs to me that there are three kinds of shortcomings. There was an inability to foresee such an extreme weather event. There was shortcomings in resilience standards or regulatory oversight. Mm -hmm. And there were shortcomings in uh, supply chain and technology performance. Do you think those three things bear sort of equal responsibility when we think about that event? And when we think about the future, do those three things continue to have uh, the same vulnerabilities or have we seen improvements in any of those three areas? Yeah, I would place the most blame personally on kind of the technological shortcomings like during that, during that event. Because if we had only lost half of the amount of power plants that we lost during the system, it would have, it would have been a lot less painful for those of us on the ground, me being one of the 12 million Texans without power for four days during that experience. Because what happened during that, we, what happened during the event was we lost so many power plants that to keep all of the critical circuits on, critical circuits be in lines with hospitals and fire stations and EMS and, and all of these types of facilities that we want, that's the last thing we want to go down is a hospital um, or police. Because we had so we lost so many power plants, we were only able to keep the critical circuits on and not able to what we call roll the blackouts or share the pain among you know all of the millions of Texans that were without power. If we had lost less power plants, maybe say less half, the power the blackouts would have rolled and they would have been more of a nuisance. And honestly, I think most Texans would have just looked out the window and said, "Hey, there's snow on the ground." Still, after three days, that doesn't happen here, and would have basically kind of written it off as this is a pretty bad winter storm, by the way. And we would not have seen as many deaths from exposure because people would have had their heat turned back on for you know hours at a time. And I think it would have been a lot less of an issue. And so all that to say is that a storm like that will make us you know, think about how much insurance are we willing to buy. And you know, after the fact, we might not want to build a grid that is completely robust against 2021 because that we may deem that to be too expensive, but we probably want it to be more robust than it was. That's a terrific point. I think that's a really great insight. How do you think we should evaluate the effectiveness of the resilience measures we see in Texas? Do we have to wait until the next disaster to know how well they work? I mean, you know, unfortunately, to put them to their full test, I mean, we probably will need to have another big winter storm uh, happen. Although you can, we have already seen cold spells in the Permian region reduce natural gas output. And so we have already seen that our natural gas system still is pretty variable when it comes to weather, still pretty dependent on, on the weather. And so I think we're seeing that we still have vulnerabilities there. I think we're going to have to see a bit more on the, um, for the power plant side of things. And that may, as we're recording this, may happen this weekend. We'll see. Although multiple reports indicate that every kind of generation fell short during the storm, several elected officials blamed the state's power crisis on wind and solar. Do you think these claims had significant or lasting effects on uh, the perception of renewable resources in the state? I don't really think they'll change anyone's minds, to be honest. I think it's uh, knocking against renewables is kind of a, a pastime of, of, of some elected officials um, down in this or in this part of the country, in the state. But the fact of the matter is, if you look at like what what resources are trying to connect to the grid in our interconnection queue, it is actually the amount of wind and solar trying to to be built in this state has grown since then. It's getting it's getting bigger, and so 
I don't really think it'll impact, you know, what gets built or, or how it gets, you know, developed. And I think if you didn't like them before, you probably like them a little less. If you liked them before, you probably didn't pay attention to what was said. Conversely, do you think there are opportunities for clean energy technologies to support uh, resilience of the grid in Texas in the future in ways that are uh, maybe under development or not yet realized? Absolutely. I think we have potentially a nascent geothermal potential in the state. They just launched a, a geothermal kind of trade working group uh, a week or so ago in Texas. Texas already generates and consumes one third of the hydrogen production in the U.S., 9 million kilograms per day. The vast majority of that going towards in the petrochemical industry, but is also hydrogen's a great energy energy storage mechanism. We already have the pipelines and the storage and the ability to make and store and this that and the other. So nuclear, by and large, we did have an issue. We have two plants, four reactors, three of them stayed online during the event, which is which is in line with ERCOT's worst case scenario. Their worst case scenario is they lose one, and they did. But I mean, it did better than the other. Uh, quote unquote firm resources during that event. So, I mean, I think there, there are other clean energy technologies that can kind of take up that mantle of being firm, dispatchable and reliable um, as we move forward with how, uh, with how the market evolves. Again, um, in addition to the winter storm we've been talking about, Texas has experienced devastating hurricanes, flooding and heat waves among other disasters. When we think about grid resilience, how much carryover is there from one hazard to the next? Does this winter storm provide lessons that are useful for thinking about heat waves and other kinds of disasters? Yeah, and the, the Texas grid has always been built for the summer. That is when we've had historically, you know, have had all of our peak demand issues. And it, if we had been able to meet the peak demand during February 2021, it actually would have been the most electricity that the grid had ever served. And it would have blown away all of our previous summer peaks. But we didn't, and so the summer still rains as the the maximum uh, electricity production because our our system is built, you know, for that. And and a lot of the same types of power plants we have operate just fine in northern climates where it's cold. But when it's cold, a lot of times buildings are built around power plants because they want to keep you know the heat in and keep the cold out. We in the summer are trying to keep the heat out, so we don't build buildings around them. We don't build shelters around them. Our wind turbines have air conditioners, not heaters in them. Our supply chain for natural gas is just in time because it generally in the summer, you don't have any issues with freezing anywhere of anything. You know, so I, I think there's some main, some, some big differences there in terms of like our, our gas and electricity grids work better together in the summer because there's not as, not as much competition for them. And we just built our system to handle the summer versus, uh, versus the winter. And as we electrify more and more end uses, electric heating, whenever the temperatures get very low, can consume more electricity than the same unit used for air conditioning in the summer. So a home can consume more electricity um, in the winter than it is in the summer. And as all air conditioners are electric, but not all heaters are electric. But as we get more and more of those, we're going to have to pay more and more attention to that um, in the in the winter time. So I think there are some parallels we can draw, but I think they're distinct enough that they they both deserve their own study. Sure. So you've talked about um, maybe seasonal differences in Texas versus other states where demand is higher in one season versus another, and also uh, differences in demand for end uses. Um, I wonder, how do you think uh, utilities and utility regulatory commissions are thinking about these changes in both demand and weather events in the near term and in the longer term? 
Yeah. So a lot of a lot of utilities are, you know, more and more, uh, you know, looking at things like responsive demand or demand that can be turned down during either summer peaks or, you know, during during winter peaks or more industrial loads that are able to um, to do the same, be they data centers or um, petrochemical facilities. And so th there's been a big push kind of on the demand side. We're also seeing a lot of energy storage being built in Texas. The interconnection queue is not only full of wind and solar, but also full of a lot of batteries growing 4x what we have you know, right now in just in the next couple of years. And so if, if the market puts out the incentives for the technologies, I think they will, they will show up. It's just going to be, are we putting out the right incentives for, to get to the end result that we want? We've talked a lot about the bulk electricity supply and the natural mm. gas system. Um, I wonder if you think that the winter storm in Texas had meaningful impacts or long-term changes on the consumer side and the demand side for thinking about resilience and preparedness. I think a lot of people are thinking more about their personal resilience, you know, be that having somewhere to go or, you know, making their home more resilient. And we've seen the same thing in California with the public safety power shutoffs with PG&E turning off power to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people whenever the wind, whenever the Santa Ana winds um, kick up and increase fire uh, risk. Through that, we saw a lot of people installing, you know, solar and storage, but also a lot of people installing generators um, at their homes. I think the same thing is happening in Texas. A lot of people, particularly with new homes or retrofits, are you know looking to increase their personal resiliency by you know making sure that they're able to at least meet some basic minimum needs. You know, if not their full out comfort. You know, if if an event you know like this happens again. In the last year, we've also seen some federal attention to resilience. I'm thinking in particular of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and its funding uh, for grid resilience, but also. Uh, updates to reliability standards, which are encouraging utilities to think about weatherization and preparedness. What else can or should we expect from the federal government in this area? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. The answer you know, can kind of differ if you're in Texas or not, because Texas being an isolated system is not under the same jurisdiction that the rest of the U.S., um, currently is. And in general, this doesn't fall under much of FERC's jurisdiction, still does fall under NERC, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. I think I got that right. Their, uh, their jurisdiction, which, you know, makes, you know, standards for reliability um, and, and things like that. And so, I mean, Texas got a list of suggestions after uh, 2011, a list of strong suggestions, if I will, of how to be more resilient, promptly ignored them. And then, you know, 10 years later, we ended up uh, where we are. So since then, we've now gone back and adopted those 2011, more of those 2011 suggestions, some of our reliability uh, standards for, for power plants and, and things like that. And so hopefully that makes us better prepared. But I mean, as we're seeing across the country, more, you know, hurricanes like we saw in Louisiana, I'm thinking also back to superstorm like Sandy, you know, big wind events and things like California. I mean, there's, there's lots of areas that our system you know, frankly, needs upgrades. You know, I, I one time added up, you know, how much it would cost to replace all of the wires and poles that we currently have. And it's somewhere around $5 trillion that it would take. And then if you look at the depreciated status of those, it's like, how old are they? A lot of these things were built in the 60s and 70s, whenever electricity use and generation was exploding, getting to the end of industrialization in this, um, in this country. And a lot of our stuff is just frankly old. Um, we put in the money a long time ago but things have a certain amount of shelf life and the conditions around them change. And so I think we do need to, you know, spend a lot of money on, 
you know, not only keeping things the way they are, but making them robust going forward. And, and unfortunately, you know, you can't really cut a ribbon around maintenance or an upgrade. Usually it's, it's, you know, people like to build something new. They like to, you know, be seen photo ops, ribbon cuttings, things, you know, like that, these events. And, and frankly, a lot of the work we need to do is rather drab and boring. But if we don't do it, then we end up with events like we saw in Texas and see in California and, and elsewhere. The terrific answer. When we think about the winter storm in February 2021, Texas was the most hard hit, but other areas in South in the South Central U.S. were also affected, mm-hmm. uh, and and to some extent they benefited from transmission capacity and bringing in power from uh, the Northeast. I wonder if you think that in Texas there's a lesson to be had about integrating more closely with other regions of the country and and um, whether you think there's compelling interest for national transmission infrastructure to help improve resilience. Yeah, I mean, you know, any connections, any imports of electricity that we had been able to get, be they from, you know, from Mexico in the south to Oklahoma in the north, New Mexico in the west and Louisiana, Arkansas in the east, I mean, anything would have helped, you know, during during that event because we just we just frankly could not meet the demand that that was there. Um, And while some other areas were having trouble, they weren't having as much trouble, maybe just for a few hours, they wouldn't have been able to help. So I think there is a compelling interest at, you know, taking a hard look at what it would look be look like to better integrate into into systems. I mean, or economies of scale do work in terms of, you know, being able to, you know, better utilize infrastructure and things like that, you know, as as systems grow grow bigger, they can also have cascading failures. And so we got to watch out, you know, for, for that type of thing as well. And, you know, Texas doesn't do it for a whole host of reasons in terms of some of them being oversight and having less, you know, federal oversight from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission or, or FERC. But there, we are connected to other systems. They're just not synchronously connected. And so all grids operate on alternating current, but we, we convert that into direct current and then share that with other systems that convert it back into alternating current to be on their, on their own frequency. And so we do have these ties with the east and the west and, 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 and down to Mexico, but they're very small and very weak relative to the demand that we normally experience or were experiencing during that time. So the precedent is set that we could more integrate without falling under the jurisdiction. Um, and people are nervous about it, is if we become too dependent on other regions, do we lose our autonomy, et cetera. So just to review, from our conversation, it seems like there's a lot of attention to um, enhancing coordination between the natural gas system and the electric systems for resilience, thinking carefully about the evaluation or cost benefits of resilient infrastructure and management strategies, and also thinking about greater interconnection, perhaps, to move power Mm -hmm. where it's needed during disasters. Um, Do you think we're missing any big themes when we think about resilience and lessons learned in Texas? So I think one of the one of the kind of getting into the into the weeds of of what happened with the blackouts that we had when we when they first came out they were promised to roll we were promised they'd be out for 15 minutes and then they would roll on they were not able to roll because we didn't have any non critical circuits we could turn off in order to turn someone else you know back on and it you know came to light that these circuits are rather large they can be you know thousands or tens of thousands of meters and so actually having a deeper discretization of the system having more switches where you're able to control more finely control who has power and who doesn't we might have actually been able to roll these outages if they had been down to that event it's it's the equivalent of coming into a room and having one switch to turn on and off four light bulbs having that finer level of control on the system i think could make it more robust or at least make it such that the pain is not as deep 
That's a great point. We think about decisions like that and how many switches there should be. Who is best positioned to make that determination? Is it utilities or regulators? I think the regulators should set the high notes and then let the utilities kind of figure out how they how they want to do it. And here's the catch. In Texas, we actually have switches on everybody's house. We have smart meters on everyone's home. And theoretically, we could have rolled these outages home by home. And so if there's someone in a house who's, say, on an oxygen tank or a ventilator or things like that, we could definitely leave that house on. But if someone else, you know, is there, there's no critical load in the house, we could have, you know, rolled them off for, for some time. We have all of the switches. We don't have the back end to talk to all of those switches. So we have 8 million smart meters across the state, but we have basically the equivalent of dial up in terms of connecting to all of them. So we can turn on and off a few thousand per day, but not the millions per day that we would have needed to, to better ride through this event. And so it's not only having the hardware, but it's also having the software and the connectivity that allow you to access that. Very good. When we think about the costs of the winter storm, um, there was some legislation that allowed electric and gas utilities to use bonds to recoup some of their costs, um, both for recovery and for future resilience. Is that the right way to think about how we should pay for these things in the future is after the fact or, you know, if not, do we have any brilliant suggestions about how to better factor in some of these investments uh, moving forward preemptively? Yeah, I mean, probably paying for it before, you know, would have been less than the 50 to 100 billion dollars that that you know, we cost, um, depending on how you count or how much you count. But it, again, it comes down to is who, who's making that decision on how much is worth spending, how much insurance, you know, are we, are we buying? It's how we've done it in the past. I mean, California's still paying for Enron 20 years on, and now Texans are going to be paying for URI for the next 20, 30 years. It's, um, it's unfortunately the only way I think we know to do it right now, because we don't, we're not really thinking like systematically about what level do we want to get at and making sure we have all the pieces in place to weather such events. I wanted to give you the opportunity to have the final word on looking back at Texas a year later. What do you, you know, what should we, what should we bear in mind? What should we think about for the future? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things for Texas that also can be generalized, you know, to other areas is really looking at which of our systems, how interconnected and interrelated and reliant our systems are. I mean, Texas is now a case study on how the gas system and the electricity system are so coupled that if you don't have one, you will not have the other. Because we also had issues with getting gas because getting gas to, to market because we lost electricity um, to, the, to our electric, electrically driven compressors and things like that. And so it, the way that most people experienced this, the vast majority of Texans experienced this event was through losing electricity, not knowing what was going on kind of on, on the gas side. And so I, mean, I think it, it's up to you know, the, the regulators and you know, those who have that 30, 80, 100,000 foot view of everything to be looking to find where those interconnected vulnerabilities are, mapping them out, Honestly, I was proposing we honest, we have an energy war games or something between where we have our public utility commission, which regulates electricity, our railroad commission that regulates um, oil and gas, and put them in a room and make them go through these events. Because there were, there were manual things that were able to be done if you knew the right person to call, but you, we don't have that cooperation between the two formalized very well. And the lines of communication were not very open. And so, I mean, I think we need a better process, you know, of that going forward and for looking at where our interconnected vulnerabilities are. 
I guess one other question that we didn't touch upon is the impact of the deregulated electricity market and natural gas uh, markets in Texas. Do you think that impacted the sort of severity or magnitude of these outages? I'm not convinced that the market structure itself led to more outages than than otherwise would have been. You know, typically in a in a more regulated market, the you know utilities have to convince the regulator. In this case, would have been the Public Utility Commission that upgrading or winterizing the money would have been worth spending. That could have been denied if they had brought it before it because it would have cost more money and they could have you know used that to cut that from a budget to make the project more economical. But Having said that, I mean, I do think there is space for, you know, things like minimum performance standards, like the car market. There's minimum safety standards that every car must meet, but yet there's still plenty of competition in that market. So I don't, I think we can do it in a way that preserves, you know, what we have or, you know, these liberalized markets that we have while also making it more, you know, robust against these types of events. Great. I think that's actually like a pretty good note to end on. But um, because we have a couple more minutes, I wanted to ask you about the Texas Energy Reliability Council, which was informal, but was given some formal mandates in under new legislation, one of which was to enhance communication in the energy and electric industries. And another was to supply the legislature with an annual report about the energy supply chain, including a map. These are things that you talked about needing to happen in the state. Do you have any hope that effort will be meaningful or, you know, timely? Yeah, I mean, I I really do hope so. Because, I mean, you know, during the event, I mean, I knew everyone from consultants and trade groups and everyone who knew someone to call, who maybe could call someone else, who could maybe call this person to turn this gas on to this plant to get that electricity to that compressor. And it was a mess. I mean, it, it was literally, it was a mess. And you know, while some good was done, not as much good was done that probably could have been done. But again, without, you know, having this whole thing mapped out like they're supposed to be doing, we don't know where the good, you know, could have been done or, or should be done. So I'm, I'm hopeful that it has, you know, legislative backing against it, that we will get a better picture of, of how things look. I hope that's made public, you know, minus any things that are super critical, you know, against attack or, or, or things like that. But a lot of the infrastructure is already public. We just don't know how well it's connected. There is going to be some inequity in how this is paid for because uh, there were, you know, certain utilities and certain co-ops and things like that that, you know, were not as well prepared as others and thus are bearing a bigger piece of the pie that's going to have to be paid back. So somewhat depending on where you are in Texas, you know, your bills might be higher for the same amount of electricity relative to other parts of the states. Also, there is some rumbling that there could have been some price majeure on the natural gas side of things. Typically, force majeure being someone like a gas utility runs out of gas and just physically cannot provide it to an entity. But there is some rumbling and FERC is looking at if there was their price measure, they just, the prices were so much higher on the open market that they took away gas from otherwise firm contracts and sold it to unfirm customers who are willing to pay more. If that's the case, then we better see some heads roll because that, that probably left a lot more people in the dark and, and caused a lot more hurt um, and will cause a lot more financial pain going forward than if that hadn't happened. I think it's a terrific analogy. So thank you very much. Thanks to Morgan and Joshua for joining us this week. We've linked to some work that Joshua and his colleagues at UT Austin published on the grid crisis and encourage you to check it out. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and on our website, CSIS.org. Follow us on Twitter for more updates at CSIS Energy. And as always, thanks for listening.